Well, this last week we hit a mile marker in the U.S. Over 200,000 deaths related to the coronavirus. The world as a whole is quickly approaching 1 million deaths. And here in Texas, we have 15,300 plus deaths with the coronavirus. And during this time, a lot of us are asking some very deep questions and really struggling with this issue. And that's why we've been giving some time here, apart from our normal study in the book of Ecclesiastes, to dive into this issue and to think through it and to seek to to be faithful to the gospel and what the gospel calls us to do in response to what Christ has done. But this does leave us asking the question, how should we live in a time of pandemic? How should we think? How should we move? How should we reflect on what our duty is, those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus? That is a good question to ask. And I recently came across an article. It's called, Christianity Has Been Handling Pandemics for 2,000 Years, written by a fellow named Lyman Stone. And this was released actually in the middle of March when everything began to shut down. And I just recently came across it, but I found it to be very interesting. And he launches his, um, his article with an introductory um, paragraph, and then he says this. To find moral resources to tackle COVID-19, both its possible death toll and the fear that stalks our communities alongside the disease, we have to look at the resources built in from the past. For me, this means examining how people of my tradition, Christians, have handled plagues of the past. The distinctive approach to epidemics Christians have adopted over time is worth dusting off. The Christian response to plagues begins with some of Jesus' most famous teachings. And today we're going to look at one of Jesus' most famous teachings. It's a story that he told. It's a story that he told that had everyone's mouth hanging open in shock because it went against common wisdom that everyone embraced and everyone believed. I'm, of course, talking about the story that Jesus told of the Good Samaritan. We're going to dust it off again today. We've looked at this together as a community of faith, but we're going to dust it off again today and reflect on it, given our present circumstances here in the midst of a pandemic, and to ask ourselves the question, what does this story have to say to us as we seek to be wise, as we seek to, to live in a way of love like Jesus calls us to do? And so we're going to, to look at this story today. We're simply going to call our study Love and Sacrifice in the Time of a Pandemic. And if you are new to Christianity and you've not heard the story of the Good Samaritan, you're going to see what Jesus dials in on, which is an issue of love. Now, many people have heard the story of the Good Samaritan, but very few people know the reason why Jesus spoke it in the first place. And it all arose because of a question that an expert challenged Jesus with that had to do with eternal life. And Jesus' response had to do with love. And so we're going to unpack that a bit this day. So if you're new to Christianity, we hope that this will be an encouragement as you dial in to understand who Jesus is and what Jesus calls his followers to do. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you're going to be challenged to think through what does it mean to love in the context that we find ourselves in, in a world of real pain and suffering. So let's pause for just a brief moment and ask the Lord to teach us again. Lord, we would ask that you would help us to have a fresh encounter not simply with this teaching of Jesus, but with the person of Jesus in whose face your glory shines. Send forth your spirit to help us understand this teaching of Jesus and to apply it afresh to our lives. 
Some of us have been raised on this story of the Good Samaritan, and so it's very familiar, and we run the risk of, of not hearing the message applied to us today because of its familiarity. Break through that familiarity, we pray. And for some of us, we're not that familiar with this story. Or maybe we've heard of Good Samaritans or Good Samaritan laws, but we're not sure exactly what Jesus said with this. And so help us to dial in on this and to see the glory of Jesus and what he calls us to in this world. In his name we, call, we pray, amen. So this is how the text begins. We're in Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 25. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, this is the question that is presented to Jesus. We're told that a lawyer asked this question, and it's not a lawyer like you and I tend to think of lawyers. This was a person who was an expert in the Old Testament law, most likely had the first five books of the Old Testament memorized, down cold. Jesus, being a rabbi, most likely had that down cold as well. And so a lawyer stood up, and he asked Jesus a question, but we're, we're, we're given a, a hint by Luke that he's not at all genuine in this. We're told here that, that he's wanting to put Jesus to the test. And so we know from the Gospels that the religious leaders were trying to trip up Jesus, looking for an excuse to condemn him. So here's the question. Teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? Let me just say, wouldn't it be great if everyone in our community was asking this question? If everyone wanted to know the answer to this. Not only is eternal life possible, but what must we do to inherit eternal life? And this is what Jesus said to him. It's a bit surprising. He responds with a question. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? How would you like to get a pop quiz from Jesus on the, the meaning of the Old Testament law <laughs> and come up with an answer on the spot? I think many of us would, would freak out. I know that I would be really nervous about answering that question. But this is what the lawyer said. He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Here he pulls a verse out of the book of Deuteronomy and another one out of the book of Leviticus and he puts it together as a summary of the Old Testament law. That's his answer to the pop quiz Jesus gives. And Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. It's interesting that Jesus responded that way, isn't it? Not follow me, not even believe in me. Love perfectly. If you want to be a part of God's kingdom of love, Love God with everything you've got and love your neighbor like yourself. If you do that, you can live forever. But verse 29, we're told that he, that is the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He's wanting to justify himself. That is, he's wanting to get himself off the hook. He's wanting to be able to declare himself as a person who has fulfilled the law. So he's asking Jesus for clarification here. Who is my neighbor? In other words, who am I obligated to love? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Jesus replied with the story that has become probably the most famous teaching of Jesus. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. 
But a Samaritan, let's pause here for just a moment. Jesus just highlighted two religious leaders, people who were the spiritual elite of the community of God. And they both noticed this man lying there beaten, half dead, and they avoided him. They went by on the other side. But a Samaritan, and those of us who know this story know how this turns out. But when Jesus brings up a Samaritan, let me tell you, his original audience would have thought the Samaritan would finish him off. Jews and Samaritans did not like one another. In fact, we're told in the Gospel of John that Jews did not have dealings with Samaritans. There was animosity between these two ethnic groups. So Jesus says, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. The original Greek word means he felt it from the core of his being. Empathy and sympathy for this fellow. The English word, of course, means to suffer alongside someone. The the Samaritan saw him and had compassion. There's a part of him that began to suffer alongside him that was moved from the core of his being. And we're told in verse 34, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii. A denarius was a day's worth of wages. He took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. So here was a Jew who was reaching out to this Samaritan across religious divides, across ethnic divides, at risk to himself and at cost to himself, and took care of this man, began nursing him back to health, and and gave the innkeeper money, and said, look, if you have any expenses, hang on to the receipts. I'll pay you back when I come back on my journey. My friends, we can't understand how shocking this would have been. This would have been like, let's just say if you're a Republican, Jesus telling a story and the Democrat was the hero. Or if you're a Democrat, Jesus telling the story and the Republican was the hero. I remember when I taught university students this back in the day, I would talk about how Jesus might be telling this story to a group of university students at A&M, and the hero of the story is a longhorn. I mean, (laughs) that's crazy thinking, right? But it's hard for us to come up with a significant description of the animosity between these two groups and the shock that it would have been for Jesus to make not a religious leader of the Jewish people a hero, but someone they despised. Philip Reichen comes close in his commentary on this passage and says, maybe it, would have been, uh, maybe it would be something like an Islamic fundamentalist helping an evangelical Christian who was injured in a terrorist attack. It was the last thing anyone would expect. I think he gets close there to ex- uh, explaining uh, some of that animosity that might have been there and how jarring this would have been for Jesus to make someone who was despised the hero of the story. Now, let's think about this for just a moment. The religious leaders saw this man. They avoided him on purpose, went by the other way. Why did they do that? We don't know. We're kind of given permission to to imagine what the excuses might have been. But at the end of the day, is there any justification? Martin Luther King Jr. 
one time preached on this passage, and he said, I imagine the first question the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But the Good Samaritan reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? I think that's the right question Jesus wants us to be thinking about. Not only what does it mean to me, the risk that's involved, but but more importantly, what's going to happen to this man? If I don't intervene and I don't help, if I don't love this man, what's going to happen to him? So Jesus asks the question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to to the man who fell among robbers? There's the question. Jesus is answering the question, who is my neighbor that I'm obligated to love? He tells this story, and Jesus says, which of these three proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? You see what Jesus is doing? He's not answering the man's question. The man wanted to know, who is my neighbor? Who am I obligated to love? And Jesus says, who is actually proving to be a neighbor? Who is the one who is loving others like they love themselves? Who's doing what they wish that others would do for them? So the lawyer grudgingly said, I believe, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. (laughs) Oh, it's that easy, Jesus, huh? You tie loving God with everything we've got to radical, sacrificial love of other people. And you make someone that is normally despised the hero and the example of the story of someone who loves well, someone who risked it all to love others. What are you doing, Jesus? When we looked at this before, this is how I summarized our study. Jesus calls us to love others because a neighbor is something we are, not something that we have. Jesus calls us to sacrificially love others because a neighbor is not just something that we have. It's something that we are. If we're understanding what Jesus is saying here, he's saying your obligation as a human being is to love. Your obligation as a follower of me is to love. So a neighbor is not just something that we have, but it's, it's who we are. This is what Jesus is trying to get us to dial into And what's interesting is Jesus did not just tell us to go out and love and say, you know, fill in the blanks. He also taught us and he demonstrated what that love looks like. The book of Romans, we're told this, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If we can put it in the language what Jesus just said, when we were there lying half dead spiritually, unable to help ourselves, Jesus became for us the great Samaritan. He's the one who at great cost to himself laid down his life so that we could live. And ever since this story that Jesus taught, And ever since he enfleshed it in his own life by being willing to go to the cross to take our sins upon himself and to rise again, Christians have always seen Jesus as an example of why and how we should move out in love toward one another. 
The Apostle John, one of the closest disciples of Jesus, put it this way. By this we know love, that Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. How do we respond when we see someone in need, especially within the community of faith? We lay down our life for one another. That's what followers of Jesus do. And it spills outside the community of faith. When we see anyone in need, we are called to love, to activate love, to put love into action. And so here, my friends, is what I want us to do for the rest of our time together, is to think about what the implications of this might be for us in a time of the pandemic. Here's the key thought I want us to wrestle with. The pandemic is not an excuse to avoid loving others, but the new context in which we are to express love to others. Are you following me? The pandemic is not an excuse to avoid loving others, but rather it's the new context in which we are to express love to one another. What I want us to do in the rest of our time here in this study is to think through the implications of this and look back at how Christians who've gone before us have handled times of plague and pestilence and epidemics. In that article that I referenced at the beginning of our time together, Christians have been handling plagues for 2,000 years. The author Lyman Stone talked about a habit of sacrificial love, a habit of sacrificial love that Christians picked up from Jesus, both from what he taught and from his own example. So let's go back in history for just a moment and look at some of the previous plagues that have hit different places and ask themselves the question, what did Christians do? The first one is the Antonine Plague of 156 to 180 AD. This is in the second century, and this was a plague that it was believed the Roman troops brought back to the empire after battling folks in the Near East. And it was estimated to have killed off a quarter, 25% of the Roman Empire. And what's interesting in this is Christians activated love. They began taking care of the sick. They began looking after one another and even those that were left by themselves. And Lyman Stone in that article said this. He said, the Christian response to the plague helps explain the rapid spread of Christianity. Quote, as Christians cared for the sick and offered a spiritual model whereby the plagues were not the angry and capricious, uh, I'm sorry, were not the work of angry and capricious deities, but the product of a broken creation and revolt against a loving God. Christians in that second century offered the Roman Empire a radical, sacrificial love in which they began to take care of even the poor who were left by themselves. And this helped ignite the spread of Christianity throughout the Roman Empire. But they also taught people the gospel that God moves toward people in, in healing with the gospel of Jesus, both spiritual healing and sometimes even with the promise of physical healing, a promise that will come true one day for everyone who believes in Jesus at the restoration of all things. Let's fast forward a moment to the plague of Cyprian. This was from 249 to 262 A.D. Uh, it's named the plague of Cyprian, not because Cyprian of Carthage, the bishop, uh, spread it, but he's the one who gave the best account of what happened. And in his account, he said that many of us, speaking of believers, are dying from this plague and pestilence. At the height in the city of Rome, 5,000 people a day were dying from this plague, and Christians were not exempt from it. They had the plague hit them as well. But it's interesting, 
in the midst of this, Cyprian encouraged people to think biblically about this. And this is what he said. He said, how suitable, how necessary it is that this plague and pestilence searches out the justice of each and every one and examines the minds of the human race. What's he saying here? He's saying that whenever a time of testing comes, it reveals a person's character and it reveals what a person believes. And he said at this time, this pestilence is revealing how people treat one another justly, justice being what we owe to one another. So he says this is testing everyone and it's examining the minds of the human race and what people believe. And he goes on and says, whether the well care for the sick whether relatives dutifully look after the kinsmen as they should, whether masters show, show compassion for their ailing slaves, whether physicians do not desert the afflicted. He said, although this mortality has contributed to nothing else, it has especially accomplished this for Christians and servants of God, that we have begun gladly to seek martyrdom while we are learning not to fear death. What is he saying here? Let me just say, I know there's a million and one questions going through your mind. I meant to say a while ago, hold those in tension because I can't say everything I need to say at once. And I'm not going to be able to say everything that needs to be said during our time together. But those questions are well, are well worth wrestling with. But, but here he says, look, the Christians were moved into action. And they began to gladly seek martyrdom. And someone says, well, isn't martyrdom when someone kills a person because of their faith? And yes, it is. What he means here is Christians were using their faith not as an excuse to disengage from this world, was an excuse to engage in it. And if death came, so be it. He says, we're learning not to fear death. There's another bishop who lived at the time, Dionysius. And he said this, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. What was interesting is that these bishops during this time encouraged Christians not to even grieve for other followers of Jesus who died. Because he says they're with Jesus now. They're experiencing unimaginable bliss. So let's redouble our efforts to actually live and, and care for those who are still alive. And so he says here, Christians were showing unbounded love. He goes on and says this. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their very need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely, happy. For they were infected by others with a disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many, in nursing and caring, uh, curing others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. A number of presbyters, that is elders, deacons and laymen, winning high commendation so that death in this form the result of great piety and strong faith seems in every, in every way um, equal to martyrdom. And here he's saying there's such a movement among Christians during this pestilence in the third century that Christians saw those who cared for the sick as heroic and worthy of high commendation. Why would Christians do something like this? They had belief that death was not the end. Jesus came back from the dead, and he will bring a restoration of all things. And to live as Christ and to die is gain. So they were moved into sacrificial action. And this is why, my friends, they were receiving high commendation. This is why even now, 
when frontline nurses and doctors and those attending to those in need receive high com- commendation, no matter what their beliefs are, because we're recognizing in them a heroic measure, loving other people. This is what Jesus is dialing into. But what's interesting is the historian Rodney Stark, in his book, The Rise of Christianity, said this. Acknowledging the huge death rate, Dionysius noted that though this terrified the pagans, that is, those who are outside the Christian faith, Christians greeted the epidemic as merely schooling and testing. What does he mean by that? He said Christians saw the times that they lived in of pestilence, of epidemics, as a time of testing, as a time of learning. What are they learning? They're learning how to love. They know that's the new context in which which their care for others is being tested. He goes on and says, Thus, at a time when all other faiths were called into question, Christianity offered explanation and comfort. Even more important, Christian doctrine provided a prescription for action. What was that prescription for action? It was to love sacrificially. It was to do what Jesus would do. Fast forward another century, and the Roman emperor Julian was, he's really frustrated that Christianity was spreading, and it has taken root of, of the people's hearts in the empire, and he's, he's trying to uh, curb that and upend it in various ways, and he's writing to one of his priests, physicians, and he talked about Christians as being impious Galileans. Of course, this was a slander for those who followed Jesus, who based his um, ministry in Galilee, but he called them impious Galileans, and this is what he said. The impious Galileans devoted themselves to benevolence. The impious Galileans support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. Part of Julian's frustration is the reason why Christians are spreading like wildfire is because people are seeing the love that they have for one another and taking care of the poor and the sick. Perhaps that's why Totillion, living in Carthage, in that northern city in Africa, said, It is our care of the helpless, our practice of loving kindness, that brands us in the eyes of many of our opponents. How does it brand us? Only look, they say. Look how they love one another. Christians were known for their radical, sacrificial love of everyone, and especially the poor and the sick. What are Christians known for today? Are we known for a radical, sacrificial love like Jesus embodied? Rodney Stark, once again in his book, said this. This is an amazing claim. He said, had classical society not been disrupted and demoralized by these catastrophes, Christianity might never have become so dominant a faith. He makes the case as a historian that the reason why Christianity took hold and spread as fast as it did was not simply the good news it had to proclaim, but the way it radically loved neighbors, especially during times of catastrophe. Let's fast forward for one more example to the bubonic plague that hit Germany in 1527. For those of us who are historians of the Reformation, this is about 10 years after Martin Luther nailed that thesis to the Wittenberg door. And there was a a plague that swept through his town. And another pastor in a nearby town wrote to him and asked him the question, should Christians flee the city? 
And Martin Luther responded back by writing a pamphlet called Whether One May Flee from a Deadly Plague. You can get this and read it online. I, I read it this last week, and it was really fascinating to see what he said. But Martin Luther himself was encouraged to flee the city, to save himself. But he stayed and he ministered, and it cost him dearly. His own daughter Elizabeth contracted the plague and died. But he wrote this pamphlet, and he's asking the question, or answering the question, is it okay for us just to split, to save ourselves? And this is how Lyman Stone summarized the article. We die at our posts. Christian doctors cannot abandon their hospitals. Christian governors cannot flee their districts. Christian pastors cannot abandon their congregations. The plague does not dissolve our duties. It turns them to crosses on, what, on which we must be prepared to die. You see what Luther is saying here. He's saying we have an obligation to love one another. And we, may we not find ourselves missing in action. When the time calls, when the situation demands, may we be found at our post, serving and loving. Now, let me just hasten to add, he also says in this, that there are people who are strong in faith and there are people who are weak in faith and everyone needs to answer this question before the Lord. But he says we need to answer this question in terms of what does love require of us? And he says there are occasions in which it may be the case where those serving on the front lines have the situation taken care of. And if that's the case, go ahead and leave the city. But he says if the situation is dire and people need you, people need you to be a neighbor, then Jesus calls us to be a neighbor. All right, here's the objection that a lot of people are thinking in their mind. This all sounds nice and maybe even heroic, if not a little bit foolish, but we have hospitals today to take care of people. And yes, we do. And we are very thankful for this. I want you, though, to imagine with me what would have happened back in March. You remember when we stopped holding services at the request of health authorities and the governor to help flatten the curve. There was a fear that hospitals would be overrun and not be able to take care of everyone. This happened in a few places in our country. Thankfully, the community of Bryan College Station, uh, by and large, followed these orders, and the curve was flattened in our area. The hospitals, although they came close to capacity, still had the ability to care for one another. But let's ask the question, what if, what if the hospitals were overwhelmed and couldn't take care of anyone? What if nurses and doctors abandoned their posts? And it was left to neighbors to care for one another. What would we have done? It's a convicting question, isn't it? What would we have done if society broke down and the plague was completely out of control? What would it look like for us to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, to love sacrificially? Would we even be asking the question, or would we be MIA, missing in action? This is what I want us to wrestle with a little bit, my friends. I don't have the answers to all the questions, but I want us to ask the question, what does love look like for us during a time of pandemic? Lyman Stone, in another article I got off the link, said this. He said, don't abandon your post, but also don't be an idiot. I like that advice. <laughs> he says there's, there's several things we have to, to balance here. We, we have to balance the obligation we have to love one another 
And we have another obligation not to make things worse. And again, he summarizes Martin Luther, and this time in a tract that Martin Luther wrote, which was a catechism on, on how to live the Christian life. And in this catechism, he explained the fifth commandment, which was about not murdering. This is what he says. The fifth commandment, thou shalt not murder, means that we must not endanger others through our own negligence and recklessness. In fact, Luther encouraged believers to obey quarantine orders, fumigate their houses, and to take precautions to avoid spreading sickness. That's interesting advice, isn't it? Martin Luther is saying, yes, love one another, but don't be an idiot. Take precautions. And I think for us, this would be trying to follow the best advice that the Centers of Disease Control gives to us. They didn't have a Centers of Disease Control in Luther's Germany or back in the Roman Empire. But we have experts who are telling us the best practices. And so I think for us, that means let's adhere to those. He goes on to say, the Christian motive for hygiene and sanitation does not arise in self-preservation, but in an ethic of service to our neighbor. We wish to care for the afflicted, which first and foremost means not infecting the healthy. Early Christians created the first hospitals in Europe as hygienic places to provide care during times of plague on the understanding that negligence that spreads disease further was in fact murder. And so, what does love require of us? It requires sacrificial love, and it requires wise love as well. And so we were saying, my friends, the pandemic is not an excuse to avoid loving others, but the new context in which we are to express love to others. The question is not, should I engage, but rather, how should I engage? And this has been challenging, hasn't it, my friends? Because when we first sheltered in place, we thought maybe this is just going to be for a little bit, right? We're hoping that by the summer everything would be back to normal, but it wasn't. We're hoping that by the fall everything would be back to normal, but it's not. We're hoping by a vaccine to come quickly, but what if it doesn't? And so what I wanted to do is, is just for us to ask, how should I reset my life in following Jesus and thinking about love? Yes, we've been watching Netflix, and yes, we've been thinking about ourselves, and yes, we've been just trying to survive the day. And there's a place for that. But there's also a place for us to ask the question, what does love require of us during a time of pandemic? My friends, I hope there's a vaccine that comes out, but I don't know if there is one. I don't know if this plague is going to lift before long or if it's going to last another year or two years or what. I hope not. But this is a good time for, ask the question, for us to ask the question, not should I engage but how should I engage? Not do I love, but how do I express love? And so asking this question is helpful. How can I best love even sacrificially in these times? And so my friends, for some of us, it is taking care of those who are sick. I know everyone has a unique set of circumstances. Some of us care for ailing parents and we need to be wise in the way that we do that. Some of us have neighbors that we can look in on who need help. Maybe we should step up the game on that. Many of us can can help send relief to places like food pantries and serve in those places or other partners in the city in which we can throw our support behind, if not physically being present, but maybe being financially present in new ways as we're able. And so, my friends, some of you have responded well to this. We've asked you to help supply food and diapers for the food pantry here, and you've answered that. We've asked you to help um, a homeless couple that we found who are living in their cars 
And many of you stepped up to give food cards, or food cards and gas cards and to, to buy hotel uh, space for them to sleep in. Some people have given gift cards and just said, hey, look, if anyone in the church or anyone in the community that you know of can use this, please use it. So my friends, let me say, if you've been doing that, let me encourage you to keep doing that. That's exactly what followers of Jesus should do. And, and if we haven't been doing that, maybe this is a good time for us to stop and ask the question, maybe I should. How can I help? What can I be doing? My friends, what's interesting is when we stop thinking about ourselves primarily and start thinking of others, there's a sense in which joy comes in the wake of that. And I think that's by design. I do want to ask one question that some people are thinking, perhaps some of those who are watching at home. What about those of us who are at the higher risk or in the higher risk groups? How should we think about this? It's probably a good question for us to wrestle with. And let me just say this as perhaps one way to answer this question. Let those of us who are in the lower risk group be the first to fill the gaps at the post on the front lines. We don't think you should be foolish. We know from the Centers of Disease Control that there are some people who have certain risk factors that make it more dangerous. And so let those of us who don't have those risk factors be found at our posts on the front lines, helping those who need help. And maybe you can be on the back lines, supplying encouragement, uh, finances, uh, prayers to be able to help out. And so that's, that's a, I think, a good answer that we could offer in a situation like this that is consistent with what we've been hearing so far. I know there's a number of different questions that we could be asking. There's probably some in your mind that I haven't been able to answer. I think part of that is because we need to wrestle together as a community. And so let's reach out to one another and encourage one another and talk through some of these issues together. But make no mistake, my friends, our mission, according to Jesus, is love in action. And so let's put the words of Jesus into practice. Go and do likewise. Not because we're trying to earn eternal life. That's crazy. We can't. We haven't loved like we ought. But because Jesus loved us and sacrificed himself for us and rose again from the dead and invites all of us to believe in him and to join in his mission of loving a hurting world.